What does it mean to be a man in the 21st century? What can we learn from people who study and work with men? Why does focusing on masculinity matter? These are some of the questions we are here to answer. I'm Alex Bove, inviting you to talk like a man. Hi again, everybody. It's episode four of the Talk Like a Man podcast, featuring my interview with Darius Mooring. Who's Darius Mooring, you might ask? Well, Darius Mooring is a black, queer thinker, speaker, and artist living in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. But I caught up with him at Widener University, where he's part of the Interdisciplinary Sexuality Research Collaborative, and he is a research technology coordinator. So he's a data guy, a research guy, computer guy, and we talked about all of that in the interview. He's working particularly on a project with communities of color, uh, men who have sex with men in communities of color, particularly in Baltimore and uh, Jackson, Mississippi, areas where uh, there's a there's been some increases in HIV recently and so some some good efforts toward prevention and education in those communities. So we talked we talked about all of that and also he's got his computer science bona fides, uh, a BS in computer science and he's working on his MS right now and last but not least uh, Darius is just a really creative person, you know, poet, songwriter. We talked we talked in the interview about his love for dance and even how much he loves crochet. We had a nice conversation about that. So all kinds of really interesting topics. Uh, I hope you enjoyed the interview. I certainly enjoyed it a lot. So without further ado, here is my chat with Darius Mooring. All right. Darius Mooring, welcome to Talk Like a Man. Thank you very much. Uh, so we talked a little bit before about things we might talk about. And mm-hmm. I said that, you know, my my... Of central importance to me is the work that you're doing right now. Okay. So I think that people who listen to the show probably don't know much about the Institute. And so maybe just could you start with briefly, like, where are you working and, 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 and what are you doing? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So uh, Whitener has um, a department called the Interdisciplinary Sexuality Research Collaborative. And it is um, it is definitely a part of Whitener, but it, it focuses on... Um, research that is one interdisciplinary so um across the board around um different ways that sexuality kind of blends in with other disciplines and so there there's a a wide range of projects that we work on um from in anything from child um sexuality like working with children as far as sexuality up into like we have um a project now that's working with uh, black and brown. It's called BBGG, Black, Brown, Gray, and Gay. So it's like the older um, black and brown men. And so the particular project that I'm working on is sponsored by Vive. It's, it's called Vive Accelerate. Vive is a pharmaceutical company out of uh, the UK. And they manufacture, one of the main drugs they manufacture is HIV medications. And so they have done the research and realized that Baltimore, Maryland, and Jackson, Mississippi have very high HIV infection rates among black men who have sex with men. Hmm. And so they have uh, created this funding that, you know, different organizations can apply to do different work with black men who have sex with men. So Widener applied and got the bulk, like a really good chunk of money. And so what we're doing is we're creating pleasure-based um, 
sexual wellness and growth lessons and curriculum to engage the community because a lot of times uh, the way that we talk about sex can be very research-based especially when we're talking about sexual health so it's a lot of statistics around you know what are your risks and this that and the other and it it really kind of leaves leaves out the fact that people want to have pleasure when they have sex they're not really always thinking about you know the statistics around what they're doing and all this other kind of stuff. They very full well know, you know, a lot of the risks and whatnot, but um, the way in which they engage in getting what they want doesn't really, does, it's not really around like what statistics are. And um, so we have developed um, a toolkit, which is just curriculum around different topics. And it's not just about sex per se. Um, there's some topics that are around like, um, what do you need, what do you do when you need help? Like, um, and developing like healthy friend circles mm -hmm. and uh, things that have to do a lot of times with mental health as well. Um, and so we've been developing that curriculum. And another part of that is an app called Journey, which is a way to engage uh, people um, to have very private conversations about sexual health and wellness in a very like closed group environment. Um, so I'm in charge of getting this app out to people and to the organizations and saying, letting them know, hey, this is a way that you can also engage. Uh, because we've also found that in, especially in a rural area like Jackson, a lot of people, a lot of the men there have reservations about tapping into resources because of the tight-knit community uh, that's there. So, um, so they're, they're worried about just other people getting into their business, I guess? Exactly. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and um, after visiting and kind of hearing some of the stories, um, I completely understand why that is. You know, it, it, it was interesting to hear them talk about um, some people who would literally sit outside the clinics just to see who's going in and then assuming that people's HIV status is simply because you're going to a clinic. Oh, wow. I mean, and, it, and it's, I know it sounds, to me, I was like, that sounds really petty and really small, but I mean, it happens. And so, um, yeah, so this app is just a way to just um, have private conversations, run private groups, for people to tell stories, for organizations to put up content, to, you know, just really engage in a, in a very virtual and different way for people who may not have access or may not feel comfortable coming into a health organization. So, And so is this, is this like a, an intervention where you did like pre-test, post-test kind of stuff? Or is this more like you're using the research to then create this content? Right. Okay. So we're using the research to create the content. And okay. what was what's so great about this project is because it's pleasure-based, we went into the communities and had listening uh, sessions where we basically like, hey, what is it that you need? What is it that you want to talk about? Like, what are the things that within your specific community are of importance to you. And based on that and based on those sessions, then came this, uh, the toolkit and all the topics and things like that. So, oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really, really, really cool. So are you finding that, um, so I, I wanted to get back to something that you said earlier where mm -hmm. you were talking about how people in sexual situations are sometimes more, if I heard you correctly, are sometimes more maybe outcome driven and not as much pleasure driven like is that something that you found or well or not well you were saying risk driven but i was also thinking of it in terms of pleasure well well what it is is the way that a lot of times health sex education health education is 
is presented is in risk and research. You know, these are the percentages of people who become infected with this, da 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 da, and these are the risks that you run if you have this type of sex, mm-hmm. blah blah blah. But that's not how. That's not. How, I'm going to be right. That's not how I think about sex. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I have a pleasure base. Like I want an expected end, and this. These are the ways in which I'm going to try to get that expected end, mm-hmm. and. That's why we went in and had these listening sessions because it's like, okay, when you think about sex, like, what are the things that you want to talk about? What are the things that you want to hear? What are the topics that you want to discuss? Because a lot of times what happens is you have outside organizations who run research on a particular group um, with their own intentions in mind of finding out information without actually asking this group, what do you need? Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So, um the project is really based on what is it that the community needs and wants to hear about that will make them make the decisions that they need to make. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, That's the, the tricky part. Yeah, based on the pleasure that they want to get. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, all, and I guess the decisions that in some ways we as educators want them to make, you know, or we as mm-hmm. people who know the data mm-hmm. kind of want them to make, but, yeah. we, but we can't force them to. No, no. So. I mean, and that's the thing. That's the thing I, I feel like um, research is great, and it can give, it can show a lot of information, but it's not the best tool to use to try to get someone to do what you want them to do. Because mm-hmm. at the end, people are going, people are going to do what they want to do. Like, and they, and they want to do what feels good to them. And so it's, it's better to say, okay, what feels good to you and how do you engage in that? And then offer whatever type of uh, feedback or information that you can to help them make a decision that is well informed and then of course there's their decision based on their own autonomy but just give them the information that they need so that they can then weigh options the way that they want to weigh options instead of saying well it says here that x percent of this is this and that means that you should decide to do this mm-hmm. because although like I'm a computer science so like yeah I think logically like that but I don't think logically like that when I engage in sex yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean hot state hot state cold state as we know uh-huh um, so I'm curious and maybe you don't have the, all the answers yet because this seems like it's a long project mm-hmm. but I mean what have you found so far? Like, have you found what you think is a reasonable explanation for why these two particular communities are struggling? Wow, that is um, that is a very loaded question and answer. <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> I, I mean, because we're, we're talking about you know, or we're talking about black gay men or black men who have sex with men, um, and then there's the entire history of just you know. Black people in America and their history with the healthcare system altogether, yep. the lack of trust there, just you know, just being devalued and and, and undervalued, and 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 just the distrust that, they, that that lies there, and so that a lot of that, and that's a lot of history to unpack, and a lot of ways in which that history has influenced how we are socialized to think about our own health. So. Yeah, that's 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 a, that's a lot to have in a conversation. And like I said, like I can talk, you know, for me for a long time, it was like you only really went to the doctor when you were sick, mm-hmm. and a lot of it had to do with the fact that what can we afford to do, and so you know, social economic status plays a huge role in that. And you know, and and yeah, we grew up and we had health insurance, but if we have a copay and there are five kids in my family, you know, what I'm saying like, what do you do then? Yeah. So who, um, who gets the care? Who, you know? Yeah, who gets the care and all that kind of stuff. So like ongoing, like even ongoing preventative care, you know, even that costs. So yeah, 
Um, but the, I guess I was I guess I was thinking more specifically. You'd mentioned that these two particular communities, mm-hmm. Baltimore and Jackson. Like, is there is there anything so far that would suggest like why those particular places of all places? I don't know. I think that's more that's research that Vive has identified. Okay. Um, and they kind of brought that to us. So I think that that research is is something that there, and I'm sure it's it's somewhere in our project um, contract. It's not anything that I'm I'm familiar with as far as what their findings were. Mm. Um, but now that you say that, like I would be interested to to see what they've found. But I think it's really, again, based just based on data, just based on the fact that the HIV rates were just a lot higher in those two areas than they have seen in, in other areas where you know there are black men who have sex with men. Yeah. So. Well, what 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 could you characterize or summarize what the men said? Kind of, you had these sessions, you had these information sessions, these needs assessment kind of sessions. Mm-hmm. Were there some themes that came up or or? So I've just got onto the project in January. So the project started three. So we're ending the third year, which ends in December. Oh wow! So like, so a lot of that is in the research, but a lot of that just because I came in so late, like I wasn't able to catch up on all that. So I haven't mm-hmm. been a part of the project through the whole the whole way through. So a lot of the listening sessions, all that stuff, I didn't even come into all of that until until just now. So yeah, I don't really have much information about that. Okay. Unfortunately. Yeah, no, I'm just, I'm really curious because I'm just wondering mm-hmm. like, was there, you know, did you find, and especially, I'm just thinking like Baltimore versus Jackson, just north mm-hmm. and south and a little more rural and a little, a little more, more urban and mm-hmm. just so many differences. Well, I think, and this is just me speaking, I th- because um, within the LGBTQ community, there's always like, from my experience, like, the kind of what I call mainstream LGBT community, and then there's like the black and the brown community. Mm-hmm. So um, even though these, there are resources for the LGBT community that at large, a lot of times black and brown people don't have the access or feel that like they have the, the access to tap into those resources. So yeah, so that's that's a huge thing as well. And it's just like that sense of community and where and where do they fit in and how can we get access to X, Y, and Z. And, and sometimes just not even knowing that there is, there are resources out there for them to happen to. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> so as you're crafting these curricula, like, are you, are you also thinking about? Well, I guess this is this sounds more like a rhetorical question, so mm-hmm. I probably shouldn't ask it this way. But I, I'm thinking about like all the research that I've read just on sort of black masculinity broadly. Mm-hmm. But it also sounds like you're you're really trying to focus on this one community. Yes. So. Okay, yeah, so I mean, and because I don't live in Baltimore or Jackson, it's hard for me to kind of like speak to that, but I can also say that from my visits to both Baltimore and Jackson that even those black and brown communities of community of black gay men there is very different from the experiences that I've had, mm-hmm. especially in Jackson. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I'm trying to choose my words widely and carefully when I say this, but it just it just felt very behind ways that um, I'm from the South originally so I'm from North Carolina well actually in Mississippi they, they tell me that North Carolina is not the South but oh, wow. <laughs> I mean, oh, it yeah. has North right in yeah, the yeah 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 so. yeah yeah that and then there's like there's a South and then there's the deep South so I can definitely understand that but um, one of the reasons why I was like I gotta I gotta get out of here it's just it's just feeling like there was this very clearly defined role for me as a black man growing up in my community and knowing good and well that I was not interested in that at all. Mm. Um, and then also 
not feeling like there was a way for me to get out, you know, to leave. Um, but as I went on to college and I began to like have other experiences, I'm like, yeah, I can, I can totally like get out of this place. But there, there are people like within their communities that, that don't, that don't leave, don't feel like they can leave, don't feel like they would, you know. And so, um, what it does is it just kind of recreates their own culture within itself. That's that's really kind of void of the influences of things that or pro- the progression that may have been made outside of their community. Mm-hmm. But what's also very interesting is that still having, but still the ways in which LGBT has progressed still ha- also kind of influencing the, the community that's, that is there um, in ways that are interesting. Uh, when I think about that particularly, I think about when I was talking to one of the um, organization leaders there, um, he was saying that some of the um, the black gay men were beginning to go to like some of the straight bars and the straight clubs in Jackson, Mississippi. And I mean, and just freely expressing themselves and being just as out and, you know, and whatnot. And it was beginning to cause a lot of friction um, uh, because like there, you know, it it's not anything that you would do or, or would see done on a regular basis. But like with social media and things like that, people are, are you know, have access to see and and get influenced and, and inspired even by ways in which people are living openly in other places mm-hmm. and then adopting that in their own culture in ways that just is so far beyond how culture has developed in Los Alamos. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, I'm actually thinking also about the whole, what you said earlier about how in some ways Jackson has a little bit of that small community feel of Mm -hmm. like people, people not wanting to be known, but social media just blows that up Mm -hmm. because there's no, almost no such thing as a small community Mm -hmm. once you're dealing with social media. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, yeah, that, that, that's a tension I, I think is, but then that also raises questions about who has access to social media and mm-hmm. you know and, and all of that. So mm-hmm. really interesting. It, it is. It is very and it be, being new to the project, um, there was a, this level of excitement that I had, of course, because um, helping to bring resources to Black gay men is something that lists like yes, I'm all about 100. <laughs> percent um, And then as I begin to start doing the work and, and kind of sit, start seeing, and I was like, wow. It, it's it's really really heavy, the things that people are still dealing with, as far as when it comes to access to communities and access to resources, um, and and ways in which uh, their self expression and, and how and how they live is still so very much so repressed, um, and so being in being in those environments can be very um, triggering. Um, and and I, I especially remember being in Jackson and feeling a bit unsafe, even um, just kind of being, or I would say unsafe and aware that I was very, very, very aware of even, even you know, being among black people, like I'm very aware that I'm black and very aware that I'm gay. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, it was just kind of interesting navigating through all of that in ways that like I just did not think about before. Hmm. So, like, having the privilege to kind of be who I am in, in where I live and then being in an environment where I felt like that might not be the best thing to do. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I'm also, I'm thinking about, since you brought up orientation, I'm thinking about 
the way the literature talks about MSM as this very technical, like, it's that's behavior, right? So mm-hmm. we have the orientation behavior identity, the OBI right. model, right? And then the literature doesn't care really about orientation that much. It doesn't really care about identity that much. It cares about behavior. Mm-hmm. And the data pretty much only cares about behavior because how do you have data on someone's identity? Like, that's a little tricky to do. Right. So, but 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 you've also very often in this in this interview you, you you've been saying like LGBTQ or gay men, but then you then you kind of stop yourself. Mm-hmm. So like, wh- how do you want to talk at all about like the idea of MSM versus the idea of like? Here's the thing for me. It's I, I use those terms when I'm you know talking to you and talking professionally because those are are the terms to use. Yeah, that's what's in the um, literature. <laughs> Yeah, but for me, like in my personal life, like it's, you know, when I'm talking about black gay men, I say black gay men. Mm-hmm. Or I say queer, you know, if I'm talking about people of color, I say queer people of color. Yeah. Um, you know, and so me doing that is just, you know, when I'm talking about that, I try to be as inclusive as I possibly can, um, you know, when I'm talking to a wider audience of people, you know. So that that's really what that is, just kind of just constantly in my head trying to be as inclusive as I possibly can. But... Yeah, it's just, it's it's interesting, especially, especially now that inclusion is such a huge um, topic and something that we're all striving for, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And it's like, how, how can we possibly be as inclusive as, as we can be? And for me, it's just, it's just really about just being open. Um, and as things begin to change, just being open to that change as well. Yeah. Um... So I was curious when I read your bio about all these science degrees and all these computer <laughs> all these computer degrees, and I was thinking to myself like, because I'm I'm like a liberal studies person. Mm-hmm. So I came to sex education through like literature and sociology and like all these you know mm-hmm. abstract ideas, mm-hmm. and then I took statistics and like I learned how to do the data, so mm-hmm. I, I got competent at that. <laughs> um, but now, so like, how did how did you go from? Because you have the computer degrees all the way back to your your bachelor's. Mm-hmm. How do you go from super computer data stats person <laughs> to like, well, this is what I want to do with this, right? Um, I don't. Um, it was not a planned path. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so actually, when I started undergrad, I started out psychology major. Um. And I was like, yeah, I definitely want to be like a psychology major. I want to be like a therapist. I want to do all that kind of stuff. And that's took my intro to psych class. And I was like, I don't know if I want to do that. <laughs> um, because um, the science behind it was very, it wasn't a hard science. Um, and I've always enjoyed mathematics, I've, you know, across the board. I always enjoyed mathematics. And, and, and um I developed an interest in my senior year in high school in computer science and programming because it was going to be lucrative, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sure. And so then I decided to switch over to, first it was computer information systems, but I was like, ah, eh, this seems too well packaged because it was really like, at that point in time when I was in college, I was really learning about basically like all of Microsoft's, you know, com- their complete um system you know all, all their software and I was like I don't really want to do that so then I then went into programming and programming to me is like writing poetry so I haven't expected it or I have something that I want to, you have something that you want to deliver to someone or you have a message that you want to give or you have something this purpose and then you're writing all this code 
to get to that particular purpose. Mm-hmm. And even it's so weird, it's gonna sound so weird. Even from like the way the indentation's made and the way you make comments, like you can make this beautiful, like looking code and it's like, oh, that looks amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I'm like I'm I'm very much so a logical thinker. Like I I I love the logic behind mathematics and the logic behind programming and the algorithms that are there. I mean and that and I also think that, that just kind of like in those moments give me the gratification that I want and that I need. Um, but then when I graduated in 2001, 9-11 happened, dot-com bubble burst, couldn't find a job programming, so I ended up going into retail. So I've been in retail for up until last year when I just decided it wasn't challenging enough for me. I want to go back to school for computer science. So, And over the course of the years, I thought about like going back for sociology. I thought about all this stuff because like I love engaging in all these conversations about human behavior and <laughs> like how we're socialized by you know, this, that, and the other, blah, blah, blah. And then throw in sex and I'm like, all ears, let's talk. <laughs> but, um, but when it comes to like my education, like I want hard sciences where I can just like, this is what I want, this is how I need to get it, and boom. So getting, and that's actually how I ended up with the job that I have because one of my close friends who's over the ISRC uh, department, um, I was talking, I was like, yeah, I really would like to like marry computer science to like mental health and sexual health and wellness and this and the other. And he was like, oh, well, we're doing this and we have this app and you actually might be good at doing that. So that's when he, he brought me on. So, and I'm even now still trying to figure out you know, with computer science, how can I use that to, how can I marry that with like my desire for like sexual wellness, sexual health, um, mental health and all that kind of great stuff. So it's, yeah. it's still something I'm kind of like fumbling through and trying to figure out, but I think I'll get there. <laughs> yeah, I definitely think I'll get there. So Interesting. Yeah, well, and it sounds like Because I think about that and I think about like, well, I mean, there's lots of people working for like corporations who are doing various sexual medicines or or sex toys or things like that. Mm -hmm. But but I'm really I I really find it interesting, the idea of doing these apps that are sort of more about like, how do you connect a community Mm -hmm. that maybe wants a little bit of anonymity or or. Isn't going to come to a focus group at the rec center. Exactly. Like, how do you use technology to do that? Mm-hmm. Or how do you do technology to like encourage people to take prep or mm-hmm. to you know engage in safer sex behaviors? Mm-hmm. Like, how do you use technology to do that? I mean, that's right. I think that's that's great. Yeah, it's like it's, a great you know vanguard to be on. Yeah, it's 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 pretty awesome. It's pretty awesome to see how technology has changed over the years and how we are using it, you know, and how it's a lot of what is happening in technology is user driven. Like um, human computer interaction is huge. It's a huge major. A lot of, it's becoming very huge around the country about how are humans interacting with computers and then how how can we then from there model technology in a way that's going to get them to continue to use computers mm-hmm. you know so that's mm-hmm. that's that's been really really cool but i think that one of the big things especially about the the app that we're using is like the anonymity behind like i have questions i mean because i mean there's a lot of sex shame like period across the board oh, yeah. <laughs> regardless <laughs> if it's you know heterosexual homosexual like whatever it is there's there's a lot of shame around sex and people have a lot of questions and people have a lot of desires that they want to have met but where can I find a space to talk about that? You know, and how can I be free and 
explore and discover. And, you know, technology has provided ways for people to do that in very anonymous ways as well. So, yeah, I think it's pretty cool. Yeah, that's. I was thinking about, um, what's that app? There's an app called, I think it's called Taboo or something, but where it's a, you can ask sex questions and then a sex expert will give you an answer. But oh, it's really? all, it's, I think it's a little bit like Quora or Ask, you know, ask Me Anything. Okay. But, like, uh-huh. but, but, it, but, it's, but it's, it's curated a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I, 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 hadn't, I hadn't made that connection before, but maybe this, maybe there's a way, it's a kind of a workaround to shame. Except I'm still thinking, though, I, this is the sociologist in me, is like, yeah, but but it's not changing society. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's helping people cope with sex negativity. Mm-hmm. But like, oh, man, we, we need to be shaping, you know, well, from my perspective, but this is more, I guess, the work that I'm doing. Like, mm-hmm. I want to be shaping broader yeah, and I, norms, and I, you know? And I think that that's, when I had an interest in sociology, that was really kind of what I wanted to do is like how can we change how we think and look and socialize ourselves around sex around race around all these things and then I started getting these conversations I'm just like this is like trying to change the trajectory of a snowball that has been running down this hill this mountain for like thousands of years Mm -hmm. and uh, i am more interested now in like helping people get what they need by getting the hell out of the way (laughs) like how can we avoid all this and still get what you need but um but yeah that's that's uh, a a hard feat it really is And and i think that things are we are seeing things begin to change in some ways or at least we're seeing things a lot more clear when it comes to sex and sexuality but i don't know about the whole the change and i can be kind of pessimistic sometimes i'm very cynical around things like like oh like people aren't going to change like how they feel and think about sex so like i'm going to make the change for myself and try to affect as many people as i can mm-hmm. and as far as society is concerned like i am that's just like a huge juggernaut to try to go against. Yeah. Like in my head. So. Well, no, I mean the metaphor is really interesting. I mean, you if if I visualize like this giant snowball, mm-hmm. it's like, well, uh, I don't think I can fight against that myself, but mm-hmm. maybe I can get out of the way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting metaphor. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Well, we're we're half an hour in, and we haven't yet used the the big masculinity word um but i so i i did want to know like so you're doing these apps you know and you're working on this work mm-hmm. for groups of men mm-hmm. primarily or or people who identify as men mm-hmm. primarily it sounds mm-hmm. like um is there anything you're specifically thinking about when you do that like are there thoughts that you have or not just thoughts but are there sort of things that you're doing in the work that that they're addressing like oh this is geared toward men and therefore we have to you know I don't know, speak a certain way or <sighs> yeah. I don't know. So that's, <laughs> that's an interesting question. Cause I, I think that as, as we have been engaging the communities in Baltimore and in Jackson, um, all of our curriculum basically has been, yes, this is for black men who have sex with men. And these are the outcomes that we want with this. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, and it has been very, very, very clear. Um, in, in all the lessons in the toolkits and everything like that. And then people are like, well, what about trans men? Well, what about this? And, you know, well, well we actually have some, we think this would be good if we tweak it a little bit for, um, you know, some of the women that we have that come in. 
Um, but Vive, who is the funder, <laughs> has specifically said, you know, that this is for black men who have sex with men. And so, um, a lot of it, it really is, it is really geared towards that. I mean, I, I know the lessons that we've piloted, um, there is one that we have that's actually on masculinity. Um, I think actually that's one of the ones that is still in the works. But it does take a look at how, how you view yourself, you know, and, and, and what is, you know, what, what is your definition of like being a man? Like, and, and how does that, and then how does that make you show up in the world, mm-hmm. you know? And then how does that influence what you desire when you're also engaging other men, yeah. you know, and things like that. And so it really gets people to thinking about this idea of what a man is. And if it's other men that I want to have sex with, like, what is it that I'm looking for that attracts me to that? Um, and so that's been very, very interesting. To, to see and to talk about and because I think it's even I think it e- even for me it's conversations that um, I haven't really thought in depthly about but obviously show up you know in different ways and how I engage in and and whatever pleasure based you know sex that I'm looking for or even even in friendships and so the, and so some of the the lessons that we have is like developing social circles and we found um, as we're part of one group that like even in people's friendships and social circles, like they have very clear, um, uh, a very clear model of the types of friends that they want to be associated with and seen with and socialized with. You know what, hmm. what I mean? It's very, very interesting. So what, do, what, what, what is that? Like, um, like very popular friends or like no, successful like, or something? No, or? it's more about like the, the identity or how masculinity shows up for okay. for people around them. Okay. Like, you know, I don't want to be around men that are considered feminine or look feminine or don't do this or dress like this. And, and all that is really wrapped up in what that person's idea of what a man is supposed to do, look like, mm-hmm. act, and all those types of things. Mm-hmm. And it, that has been very very interesting to have those types of conversations because then it it also makes me look at like do I think do I think like that or subliminal like in the back of my head are these ways in which I engage even just like the way I socialize with other men and so being in that work and doing it I you know although you know this is a research process we're, we're working on it like I don't at all feel like I am an expert in any of this because I'm through it all like I'm learning things about myself and mm-hmm. in ways in which I viewed myself and thought about myself that I never really paid attention to before so I think that 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 for me is probably the most rewarding part of being a part of the project hmm. yeah yeah I, I'm thinking about now now what, you're, what I what I'm thinking about is how is the way in which internalized or well in which homophobia and also sometimes internalized homophobia but um the way in which homophobia is so often femphobia and Mm -hmm. like how when i think about you know being a teenager being an adolescent and like hanging around a lot of homophobic people i grew up in the south as well Mm -hmm. and like it, I mean, it was homophobia, 100%, mm-hmm. but it was also very particular. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, we're making fun of the very effeminate qualities, mm-hmm. right? We're not making fun of just men who happen to be gay or who have sex mm-hmm. with men or whatever, mm-hmm. you know. No, we're making fun of men who dress, in, uh, dress a certain way, mm-hmm. men who talk a certain mm-hmm. way, men who walk a certain way. Absolutely. Right? Um, yeah, so, so I, and it sounds like what you're, I guess it sounds like what you're finding is that there's, well, it sounds like in Jackson, maybe this is even, these attitudes are still kind of, people are still struggling. Oh, yeah, yeah. 
I mean, and I, I think I think of well, it's not just Jackson too. I yeah, mean, I oh think no, of course. Broad, you know, and um, because I think especially recently, like masculinity, toxic masculinity have been like again very, very, very hot topics and very. I mean, because I don't remember like ten years ago hearing about it as much socially mm-hmm. as I hear about it now. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is it is and and I agree with you one hundred percent because if you have a man who by society's standards, presents themselves as a man, you know, way they walk, talk, dress, whatever, very unassuming, and they are gay, uh, it's very passing, is what we call it, like, passing. Um, That is more palpable for people than if you have a man who um, does not fit into this mold of what we think a man should do, say, and act. And that is the part of, of me that, that, that that's really, really hurtful and harmful um, in ways. Because I know, I, I know for me growing up and how I grew up, there are ways in which I muted myself and dimmed myself um, so that I could pass more. Because hmm. um, I can remember, especially being younger, like hearing ways in which I should walk and talk. And, and all this kind of stuff and like really getting that hammered into my head and say okay this is the way I need to present myself so people will leave me the hell alone well that's what I was going to ask it was, it was it was being maybe afraid that people would hurt you or like um, or, or just wanting to be left alone or <laughs> yeah I mean I hurt me yeah not necessarily physically other than maybe getting getting a beating from yeah. like a family member yeah. but like I think it was it was more hurt of feeling like I've disappointed people within my own community. Mm-hmm. So I think that that was probably a pain that I was trying to avoid more so than anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think for me, for most of my life growing up too, that has probably been a lot of the ways of how I navigated through my adolescence and pretty much into my adulthood. I was like, okay, what's the path of least resistance, and how can I fly under the radar? <laughs> you know, and. You know, that was just, that was my journey, you know, and so it was a when, lot of, when did that change for you? Um, or did it change for you? It, the way you're yeah. talking, it sounds like it did. Yeah, it did. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to figure out, like, uh, I think it was a gradual process. Um, definitely when I decided that I was not going to be going to church anymore. Hmm. Um, that was one of the ways in which I was like, I can't do all that stuff. And then... Um, I was married to a woman um, for 2003, 2008. We separated. We just actually finalized our divorce in December of last year. Hmm. So um, when we separated in 2008, kind of began my journey into like my explanation of like my sexuality, like open, open exploration of my sexuality. Because I mean, there was a lot of exploration, <laughs> you know, when I was younger. But it started changing for me then. It's like I, I want to be the person. Like, I wanted to find my own truth. Because I remember that was one of the things when I was in counseling then. I was like, I want to find out what my own truth is. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't that I wanted to, um, I wasn't looking for a particular identity. I just, I wanted to find the truth. And if the truth, you know, fit into whatever identity, I didn't, didn't matter to me. I just know that I needed to be genuine in who I was and how I was presenting and how I was living my life in the world. So, yeah. Yeah. And ongoing journey. Something yeah. I'm, I'm still... But, I mean, it's, it, we're, we're, we're humans. We're always evolving and changing, you know? So Yeah, I'm thinking, like, I, I can't imagine the journey of trying to figure out how and where I fit in. I can't imagine that ever ending. Because, <laughs> like, that feels like that's been going on for 40-whatever years, mm-hmm. you know? So, 
I want to get a little bit back to this piece of like within the I guess somewhat within the communities you're studying, but mm-hmm. we can also talk about personal experience you've had, or mm-hmm. and I certainly can talk about some I've had where. This idea of like what kind of men we ought to aspire to be, mm-hmm. and like I'm even thinking about even within you know queer communities, there's a there's at least one sub branch of like mask for mask, mm-hmm. right? This idea of like the masculinity that gets celebrated. Mm-hmm. Like I'm even thinking about um, pop you know pop culture figures or art mm-hmm. or any representations of man. Mm-hmm that are still sort of prevalent. And so, I don't know, curious, I guess, about thoughts you've had on about that or feelings or experiences or... Um, it's, it's, it's exhausting. Yeah. You know, because it's like, you know, even, even okay, so even when I go out and I, I see communities, it's like, okay, so we, we make this effort to come out of the closet, right? About our sexuality and what it is that we are. Um, to kind of like then go back into these other small closeted spaces of I need to fit in here. So like I'm out of this closet into a box. <laughs> it's like, well what the f- <laughs> like why did I even why did I even come out of the closet? But that that's really like how I think. You know what I mean? And I and I realize it's it's hard for me sometimes to understand how other people are are really kind of like attached to this idea of what masculinity is and how they sexualize this idea of what masculinity is, and I don't know, and I and I I'm always because I I do not claim to be you know perfect or have the right answers or anything, so I'm always like questioning myself like do I do that as well like you know asking because I mean yeah there are things that you know are that I find attractive that could be you know ascribed to masculinity, but there are a ton of things that I'm attracted to that aren't. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. um, but I also don't think of them in those terms. And so a lot of times when I have these conversations, I have to kind of turn that on, like turn that lens on to kind of try to see the way that someone's trying to guide a conversation around what it is that they want as far as masculinity is concerned. I don't know. It's, it's really it's really strange for me. It's really weird for me. And I think it comes from a, a lot of how I was raised, because I was I was talking to a friend of mine about. Um, even in, in my community, because I grew up in a Pentecostal church in the South. Mm-hmm. Pastor, my dad was a pastor, grand, grandfather was a pastor. But within my family, like, my dad always kissed me. He always hugged me. Like, so affection was something that was very masculine for me. Like, because I got it from my dad, got it from my uncles, got it from everybody. Um, like, crying, something that I've always seen men in my life do, you know, especially in church. Like, that wasn't anything, you know, that was uncommon. Um, so, even within the subculture that I grew up in, you know, being black, with, with like, growing up in the black church, there were just ways in which certain things, like, outside, when I was, like, at school and people, like, talk about, like, oh, boys don't cry. I'm like, what are you talking about? My dad cries all the time. Like, like I don't... N- so, like, I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Like, not even understand... And not even feeling offended or, like, maybe I should change how I think. It's, like, little confusion. Like, what are you talking about? Yeah. Because all of the men that I know and that I'm close to and that I, I'm with, like, they we all share the same, um, I guess, value or... I don't know how to, how to word or explain that. But um, I always found that very, very, very weird. Very, very weird. But then... 
also understanding there were definitely ways in which masculinity affected exactly like how I walked, how I talked, you know what I'm saying? So it was like this very kind of like dual thing about like, okay, so the boys at school, they don't cry, they don't do this, that, and that. Or like my dad would always cross his legs, like when I'm up in the pulpit. So like I grew up crossing my legs mm-hmm. and people were like, only women do that. I was like, well, that's a lie because my dad does it all the time. <laughs> yeah. 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 My dad does it all the time and it's something that I'm very comfortable doing. And like, so it's just, it's, it's just very, very interesting how, and I, I think that after coming out, like, because I was always affectionate with my brothers and because we would say, tell each other that we're handsome or because, you know what I mean? Like none of that to me, um, was even sexualized or or anything like that. So like coming out and, and and doing that with with other gay men, they found it weird or found it odd or found it strange or found it like it, it was like I'm sexualizing. I was like, no, I think you're attractive. Doesn't mean I want to have sex with you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know what I'm saying? It's just because like we also just you know build each other up and just pay compliments and things like that. So that was always um, a, that was a huge challenge for me when I first came out. Huh. Yeah. Yeah, I'm 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 curious about that. Yeah, cuz I'm thinking about like what I'm thinking about the sort of the gender norms such such as the literature says and from, you know, yeah, because this hasn't really been my experience, but the gender norms of like um men only want touch when it's going to lead to sex mm-hmm. or or uh, your example was really great is, is it's kind of the same thing but it's mm-hmm. like men only want to compliment or only want to mm-hmm. sort of bring that up if it's going to lead to sex right and right, it's right. like and that that's that's a definite like masculine hetero norm mm-hmm. but it's really interesting to hear I, what i'm really curious about is like you know but what about were there other were there other norms within your family of origin and that community that, like, what about help seeking or what about, like, being, you know, tough or being, like, yeah, I don't know. <sighs> so that's interesting. And I'm glad you're bringing these things up because, mm-hmm. like, uh, again, when I think about, like, you know, masculinity, like, those aren't things I like. So let's say, so help seeking. Um, that was not frowned upon. So that was one of those kind of like underlying things. Like if you ask for help, it's like, it's fine. But also there was this thing where it was like, you want to show that you don't need to ask for help yeah. because that's a sign of like, you're strong, you're doing it. But if you if you did, it's not like, oh, well, you should know how to do this, blah, 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 blah. But it's like, it's, it's being like self-sufficient. As, as much as you can be self-sufficient and like hold your own, you know, keep down a job, make sure you had the income, make sure you provide, all those types of things. Yeah. You're good. And so, yeah, I can definitely see what... Oh, I'm glad you brought that up because now I can remember. Like, there are ways in which um, there was an illusion growing up that um, that I had just just around... Well, I, I knew that we didn't have much money, but we always, you know, got things that we needed for Christmas and all that thing. So, like, Christmas and birthdays was never getting anything that you wanted. You did not do that. And, <laughs> and I was like, we did not write to Santa Claus. We didn't do any of that stuff because you're going to get what you're going to get and it's going to be things that you need. But, like, later on, I found out from my dad that, like, there were times where he... Literally, people would give him things to give to us. And, like, and we had no idea about that, you know. Um, but hearing him talk about that like I, I knew and I could feel his almost like disappointment in himself around that. And um and so we would have conversations around I was like, Well dad, like I 
you know, I always, and I was going to even come out, like, I never felt like my dad did not love me. As homophobic as he still is, like, it's not this hateful type of, I'm going to hell. Like, none of that has ever been said to me. So, and that's why I find that, like, it's, it's so weird, like, when I think about, like, those things in my life and the ways that I was raised and grew up. It's, it's, it's really weird in how it's kind of constructed my identity around masculinity. So yeah, so help seeking, yeah, I've not very overtly said, but very subliminal in that sense. Well, it also sounds like that kind of the man as provider is was really a Mm -hmm. dominant norm, which Mm -hmm. is a big social norm, you Mm -hmm. know. Yeah, no, that that was a big one in my family of origin for sure. Mm -hmm. You know, in my family of origin, the norm was always to have like a stay at home mom and like a a breadwinning father, Mm -hmm. and then like a you know and. It's like, I didn't want to have any of that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was not going down that path, mm-hmm. you know? And so, like, but, you know, but then there's also this, there's all these cultural messages about, like, what it means to be a man, and mm-hmm. you know? Yep, yep. And, like, I, I remember when I decided to leave full-time work last last year to go back to get my master's, um, all I could hear in my head, my, my dad's voice, like, don't quit a job before you have another job. Don't quit a job until you have another job. And like, and I was quitting work, and I had no other, like, I had no other plan, no other plan, no other savings, no nothing. Like, I was literally and made a rash decision without any planning, <laughs> and I had to get over that. And actually, it took me about, it took me a couple months to like move past that, and even a couple months to even tell my dad that I did it. <laughs> um, and I did, and he was just like, "Oh, that's great, like, good for you." And I'm sitting here like, "Are you fucking kidding me right now?" <laughs> That's great. Well, like, it helps that you were going to grad school. <laughs> yeah. mean, it wasn't like you were going to go out on the road with, you know, well, some... Well, and that's another thing, too. <laughs> like, when you when you say that, it's like a part of the identity of being a man is, like, not having these wild, vicarious dreams yeah. of, like, becoming a musician, which is exactly what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's like, no, you're not... How did you think about it? Wow, yes. Or to write poetry. You know? oh, or to like, write I'm finally going to write poetry. I'm just, that's mm-hmm. why I'm quitting my job. Like, that's probably a different response than I'm going to grad school. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Go, and grad school for computer science. Yes. Right. Because it's like, oh, that's great because you'll get to make a lot of money once you're done. Yeah. You know, um, if I would have had, you know, if I would have really followed my own path, I probably would have ended up being either a dancer or a musician. Like, because I, I, I loved dance. It was just something that I, you know, totally would have done. But... <laughs> I don't feel like I would have gotten any support. So again, least path of resistance, right? Yeah. What kind of what kind of dance? Um, any and everything that probably kept me dancing. Like no, <laughs> seriously. Like I I really loved uh, ballroom dancing. Me and my sister used to always just move the furniture out of the way, and we would like pretend to tango around the room oh, wow. and ballroom dance and um, hip hop, of course. You know, break dancing. Um, yeah, just dance all of it is beautiful to me interesting yeah yeah, yeah. but yeah i never never did that <laughs> <laughs> well it's hard i mean it's 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 not that i want to be the voice of you know whatever providership but it is it is hard to make a career in that in that field oh yeah you totally know. I mean, it's been a little bit, I would say maybe more so lately because there have been all these TV shows with people mm-hmm. dancing and all these sort of, you know, maybe a little bit of a resurgence of musical theater. Mm-hmm. And so, like, maybe now is a pretty good time to be a dancer. Right. But, yeah, oh, that's yeah, yeah, yeah. not, well, a, you And know. that was a, that, what you're saying was a lot of part of the conversation of why my dad was like, no, you don't need to do that because, like, the money's not going to be steady and it's not going to be that and the other. One of my brothers is a full-time musician now. 
and I'm, I'm sure he, my dad still probably has conversations with him about that but he's like yeah I'm happy though you know what I'm saying I'm, and he's like I am truly truly happy and I'm like that's amazing keep doing what you're doing yeah because there's so many people that are making a lot of money you know following these norms that they need to follow and they are depressed they are you know some you know some people are killing themselves like it's like so it's it's whatever you desire in your heart. Like, and if you can follow that, then do it. <laughs> yeah, so success-driven, especially especially men, but really all kinds of people, mm-hmm. just so success-driven, and it's, at, you know, at the cost of what, mm-hmm. right? And then, too, like, how masculinity shapes what success looks like. Yeah. You know, for us, um, is, a, is also a huge thing. It's something that I'm, I'm actually currently struggling with. Um, you know, working part time and being in grad school full time, it's like, damn, I don't know how the money I had when I was working full time, and like how that affects, like, really weighs on down on how I feel about myself a lot of times. And I have to be like, dude, you're getting your education, it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, that's, I mean, yeah, that's a really good point, too. I mean, you know, yeah, what does it mean to be successful? Like, are we talking about some measure of success? by some standard of, like you said, socioeconomic standard or some mm-hmm. other standard? Or are we talking about, like, to be successful is to be able to provide enough for yourself so that you're, you know, mm-hmm. so that you feel comfortable enough, whatever that means for you, mm-hmm. and then to pursue the things that you love and want to pursue. Right. Like, that's a pretty good model of success, mm-hmm. but that's not really the model of success that no. anyone has, and particularly not men mm-hmm. in, our, in our culture. Yeah. And also, like, getting married... Starting a family. Yep. All that stuff. Relationship escalator. Yeah. (laughs) That stuff was very, very, very huge. And even now, like, um, uh, not my dad so much, but, I mean, my mom, like, because I'm the only, there's five of us, four boys and one girl. Hmm. And um, I'm the only one that got married out of the the five. Um, And I was the first one to have, okay, I have a a 12-year-old daughter. And... Since then, my younger brother has uh, a daughter and my oldest brother has a son. But, like, that was a huge thing. Like, you know, when are you getting married? When are you going to have kids? When are you going to... It's like, nobody... Everybody doesn't ascribe to, like, get married and, like, make babies. <laughs> <laughs> like, so... Yeah. But that was that was a huge part of, like, the identity yeah. there. So, I don't know. Uh... I have one more thing that's like a, I, a little bit of a personal interest of mine that you mentioned in your bio, which is crochet. Oh yeah. Like, how did you is is do you, is that an extension of just you being artistic and creative, or like is there something particular about crochet no, that you just? There's nobody else in my family that crochets. Oh okay. Um, and I don't even remember exactly how or when I started. I know it was when I was young because I can remember making little crochet projects. And again, it was so interesting because nobody blinked an eye about that. Like nobody, like I'm crocheting and I'm doing needlework. But nobody was like, no, you can't do that, you know. But if I play with my sister's dolls, it's like, boys don't play with dolls. Hmm. Like, go play with something else. But, like, crocheting in New York was totally fine. And um, now, hindsight, I do it now. It's like, I like to do things that are methodical. And so that's where, the, like, the logical computer science was like. So if, because crocheting a project is, you know, a measure of how many stitches you're going to do for how many rows and blah, blah, blah. And then what do you need to do next? Um, very methodical. So it's something that really, really, really helped me through my mental health through different phases of my life. So I've always picked it up and put it down. And then I pick it back up and I put it down again. Yeah, so now I picked it up again. 
I'm enjoying it. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. I never thought of it that way, but that makes total sense. It it it, it would be a very a very logical, very mm-hmm. spatially, you know, everything's very symmetrical. Mm-hmm. Everything's, yeah, that that's really interesting. And then once you're done, you have this beautiful project. So there's my gratitude. Oh yeah, no, that's definitely you know, like, that's the my my grandmother knitted and crocheted. My my mother does, and like yeah, it's always mm-hmm. it's wonderful to have so many things you know, out there, the mm-hmm. blankets and scarves and, you know, mm-hmm. these useful things in life. Yeah. But also, they're, they're kind of beautiful in their own way, too. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's like the whole creation process of it, I think, is is what I find mesmerizing and beautiful about it. Hmm. Yeah. So my last question is, um, is, there, is there any question I haven't asked you that you wanted me to ask you? Oh, um, no, I don't think so. Okay. No, like I said, like I, I, I didn't know exactly like how we would kind of free flow. And so I was came and I was like, okay, we're just gonna, gonna go for it. So yeah, no, not, not really that I can think of. Okay. Yeah, awesome. Well, thanks so much for talking to me. Yeah, thank this you. This was for really me. interesting. Lots of great insights. I, I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. There you have it. Interview with Darius Mooring. Hope you enjoyed that talk. It was a wonderful time, and actually we ended up staying after and just chatting for a while uh, about all kinds of things, you know, podcasting and uh, life and all kinds of interesting topics. He, he, he's just a wonderful, wonderful person to talk to, and I enjoyed it tremendously. If you uh, would like to support this podcast, please check out talklikeaman.net. So that's the sort of headquarters now for the entire Talk Like a Man project. And it links you to all the social media sites. And also, if you happen to have a buck or two and would like to chip in, we have a Patreon page, uh, patreon.com slash talklikeaman. And there's uh, a few levels of support, one of which is the producer level. And at the producer level, you get to have your name read on the podcast. So once again, I need to thank my producer, Gadi Ben Yehuda, for supporting the podcast. Uh, and again, thanks, everybody, for listening. Talk to you next time. Talk Like a Man is affiliated with the Men's Center for Growth and Change, a Philadelphia-based nonprofit organization whose mission is to help men and boys realize their full potential to love and positively connect with others. For more information, please visit menscenterphilly.org. To find out more about the Talk Like a Man project, visit talklikeaman.net.